then and that is all that matters. It's when you stop trying and say, then, you know, we might as well be dead then, isn't it? If we stop trying, we're not here. Failure at 40. Failure at 40 challenges the notion of failure and redefines what success looks like to you. Who says if you haven't reached all of your goals by 40 that you are not a success? Failure at 40 interviews, debates and discusses the reality of turning 40 in modern Britain. Welcome. To failure at 40. Failure, 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 Welcome to Failure at 40. I'm Shelley, the life coach. And I'm Winnie, the producer. And today we're speaking to Fitzgerald Mensah, who's an entrepreneur, businessman, and former psychiatric nurse. Living in Qatar, two children, and married. Welcome to Failure at 40. Welcome to the podcast, Fitz. Thank you so much for joining us today. Absolute pleasure. I'm excited. Thank you so much for having me. Very happy to have you on. We're looking forward to interviewing you, Fitz. Thank you. Thank you. Absolute pleasure. I'm glad to be on the celebrity list of your, 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 your interviewing, all the interviews you've done. I'm glad to be on that list. Absolutely. <laughs> if we could take you back to not too long ago, maybe in your um, early 20s, mid-20s, just when you were looking forward into the future and um, picturing what life might be like for you in your 40s, can you remember what might have come to mind, what you, what you built as a vision of yourself for a 40-year-old? Um, I think, um, let's, stay, let's go back to my 20s now. And I remember always having conversations with my cousins and um, we always used to speak about, you know, we want to be solid. And solid meant, you know, having, having the income and it's generally mostly material. And for some reason, I don't know, we thought we'd be millionaires by the time we're 30. I don't know, we have some crazy vision, some crazy offbeat goals with no, no plan and no action. That somehow <laughs> we would all just work out. By the time we get to 30, 40, we'll be there. And, you know, and so we definitely thought, you know, we'd have the kids and, you know, the wife and the car and everything. And I think it's just a perception that is grown out of kind of social construction, upbringing, marketing, um, you know, maybe the, the home you've been brought up with, other people you, you connect with. So I think it's a whole mix of things that kind of evolve this vision or perception in your mind. How many cousins was it that you grew up in? What was that kind of package like? Oh, I've got, um, I've actually got, my side of the family is pretty small. Um, I met my wife, um, I was with my wife, who was, was my, was my um, partner back then. Um, so she's got a much bigger family than mine. So I've always grown up with a lot of people around, but my actual household is just me and my mum. And me, my mum and dad and my brother Dennis, it's just four of us. So, but outside of the house, there's a lot of us and we, we're fairly close. Where are you from originally? Originally from Ghana. My parents are from Ghana. I was born here. Um, in uh, 1973 and so I was born in the UK but my parents took me to Ghana when I was a, a baby because when my parents came in the late 60s um, Britain was a very different place and they couldn't get a room to rent it was bad enough it was saying no blacks no dogs no Irish but it was definitely when they actually found a room to rent they'd said they don't want a baby to be there 
So they took me to Ghana and left me there with my mum's sister for a couple of years. So people were renting rooms, were being able to rent rooms, but they weren't allowed to have children in the rooms they were renting. Yeah, they didn't want a baby in there for some reason. They're just about to let a black, a black, person, a black couple rent. And this is just wow. one room with, with everything don't, don't, in there. Don't bring no baggage. No baggage. Don't bring no just... baggage. So my parents thought the climate was very difficult at that time. So my mum took me back to, to Ghana when I was a baby and, and left me there for about, two, about a couple of years to stay with her sister. So I grew up thinking my mum's sister was my mum. Um, wow. So that's that's another story. In yeah. So when I, came, well, I mean, so when I, came, I mean, that's quite common in our communities, isn't it? Yeah. You know, it's not it's yeah. not uncommon for a family member to step in yeah. and yeah. and raise children, grandmothers, aunts, sisters. You know, it's quite that's quite common. I'd say maybe not so much now, but definitely yes. in days gone by, that wasn't something that was uncommon. But you know what? It's quite funny. When I went to Ghana, my mom dressed me up. So the Ghanaian kids or cousins I used to play with when we were all like um, two or three used to tease me because I had socks on and shorts so I looked like a really prim prim <laughs> prim pop of boy everyone's in their flip tops so I've got I've got like sandals and socks on so they, they used to say something really <laughs> used to say something really funny so they couldn't get my name they, uh, they couldn't call me Fitz they called me Fee and they say Fee wore socksy war means wear so Fitz is wearing socks. So Fee wore socksy. Fee wore no chase, and oh. I'll chase them with a stick. You know, it's all part of the game. Part I chased them with a stick. Yeah, chased them with a stick. You know, like, that's part of the game. But when my mum um, finally brought me over, she had to bribe me that she was going to get me a bike because I didn't want to leave because I didn't want to leave my mum, who was actually my auntie. So my mum said, look, if you come with me, I'm going to get you a bike. And my mum said, I'm going to get you a bike from a place called Tema. So we've got um, Ghana's um, capital is called Accra. And there's another big town, like um, about three hours away from, from um, um, where, where Accra is, and it's called Tema. And my mum said, I'm going to take you to Tema. We're going to get you a bike. So obviously this journey was obviously going to the, going to the airport and bringing me over to the UK. So when we landed in the UK, I was to my mum, and I was speaking Gar, I was speaking the native, uh, native language Gar. And I said to my mum, well, there's a lot of lights in Tema, not knowing that it's London. <laughs> <laughs> my mum goes, oh yes, there's a lot of lights. They treat you. Yeah, as wow. promised, when I, so I was asking my mum, this doesn't look like Ghana, it's very cold, <laughs> what's going on? So when we got home, oh. there was a new bike waiting for me. And as soon as I saw the bike, I forgot all about Ghana <laughs> and everything else. And then find, just to add the final part, um, they took me to nursery. And when they came to pick me up from nursery, my mum asked the, the teachers, how's he getting on? And my mum was just observing me. And it's like, she just saw me standing there while all the other kids were riding the bikes and the scooters. And then I just say, oh, chale, oh, fun, oh, I'm echo. So basically, yeah. look, 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 young man, come off the scooter or the, or the bike. Let me have a go. Yeah. And <laughs> my mum said, yeah, I just seem to be very, very confident from that. Like a, a leadership qualities were coming out. From but my mom, yeah, so my mom said, look, he's not speaking English. What can we do? So the teacher said, oh, start speaking a bit of English when he gets home. So my parents, when we got home, they would just speak English. He wouldn't speak no girl. And they were hoping I'd pick up the language so I could fit in. And then one day, my mom said, um, my mom and dad were speaking in the kitchen. They were speaking girl and having a conversation. And she said, they just looked at me and I was just looking at them. And I spoke in English to say, what are you saying? I don't understand what you're saying. And my parents wow. were both shocked. So all my, all my native language had disappeared. You lost it. <laughs> and I lost it. And my mom, they were so upset that they were so keen on me speaking English that they weren't speaking yeah. my native language. So I lost it. And I couldn't understand what they were saying. So there you go. So 
and, and, lang- and, and language is so important. It's so priceless Very because important. it's so easy for our children once they are living in the UK to lose their culture, their heritage, their background. It's so priceless in terms of identity, isn't it? Yes, definitely, definitely. So that's a little bit of um, the story from then. But coming back into the, the 20s, definitely that vision, it all seemed to be very much um, material-based, having everything solid. We always have the word is solid. That means everything's solid, you're the man, everything's in point, you're no longer... <laughs> is that another word for everything's together? There's a foundation there. Yeah, and it's everything's just... together, foundation. You know, you can put more than five pounds petrol in your car. <laughs> you know, you're, you're making some moves and, you know, you're not living in credit. Everything is good. You're going on holidays and so forth. But the reality is very much different. Um, so I think that was a, much of the vision around the 20s of how the 40s um, would look like, hopefully. Was your teens also in London or have you lived elsewhere within the UK? Well, I was born in Sutton Coldfield, which is in Warwickshire, just outside of Birmingham. Um, so I was born in New Hope Hospital, or Good Hope, I think it's called Good Hope. And then I lived in Birmingham, in Halladale, as I was like, you know, four or five. And very much, I think I had a really nice childhood. Lots of, I was, I was in, you know, the 70s and 80s where you, everything was climbing trees, BMX bikes. You know, outdoor fun, no Wi-Fi, no no neck down. Yes, yes, <laughs> no, that's right. Fingers. You know, it was very much an outdoor life. So it was a lot of fun, and I was I was very much um, a leader. I'll tell you another funny story. All the kids used to like me. I think I was a little black kid around, so I was just full of fun. I was very energetic, and our garden was the end of terrace, and we had like a sloping garden that had a bit of a hill. And it was all overgrown, so it was a bit like a jungle. So the kids used to come there, and we play we play um, Tarzan. Um, so for, um, for those who don't know, Tarzan was a program back you know, in the old days where, you know, you'd have a, a Caucasian man running around Africa, you know, yelling to the animals and strangling lions and, and Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> and that was our perception. You know, Pretending Africa. to be the king, the king. Pretending exactly. to be the king. Exactly. Oh, he's in Africa. He's just strangling a lion. He must be very strong. And then so, so we played Tarzan in the garden. I remember my mom said, um, the kids... Um, we said to the kids, okay, we're going to play Tarzan. And they said, who's going to play Tarzan? I said, I'll play Tarzan. And they said, you can't play Tarzan, you're black. <laughs> Tarzan's white. And I said, no, that's okay. I'm going to, be, I'm going to play black Tarzan. So my mom says, I wasn't, I wasn't put off or shying away. I said, no, I'll be, I'll be black Tarzan. And I played black Tarzan in the back garden. So it was a lot of fun um, during growing up. And then we moved to Preston in Lancashire, which is near Birmingham. So I was about 10 then. And then my brother Dennis was born. So I was about 10, he was three. We've got a seven year age gap. So I was a very selfish child. I've been on my own for like seven years. So when they said they're going to have another baby, I wasn't very thrilled about it. So I didn't like Dennis mm-hmm, much mm-hmm, when, mm-hmm. He, when he was born. And he kept following me everywhere. <laughs> he followed me everywhere, cramping my style. But nonetheless, you know, as the years gone by, I grew fond of him. But that was the time with Michael Jackson, body popping, break dancing. So it's a lot of fun. BMX bikes. Um, I had I had scare electrics. I had everything. My parents worked very, very hard and provided everything we needed. So we had all the toys at that time. You know, the, 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 the TCR racetracks, for those who remember the old wow, toys yeah. back then, you know. So it was a lot of fun. So you just touched on um, uh, the, the multiculturalness of was it Sutton Coldfield? You said where you moved. Yeah, 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 where we, I was born, actually. Yeah. So, so how old were you when you first came back from Ghana? I must have been about three. I think about. So three. you wouldn't you wouldn't have been aware, I guess, at three of the the race disparity no. that you just left in Ghana. So, no. So no. being I, surrounded by a sea of white people rather than. 
black people wouldn't have really, I guess, occurred no, to you. No, I was still too young. No, it wasn't. I was just so much into, you know, just we, we, if there's other kids that we can play, it was, we were good to go. It wasn't until yeah. much later that you pick up, you know, that, you know, you've been treated a little bit differently than the Right. And, and when did you find that happened in, in, in that kind of... Well, like, the fun thing is, when even when I was in Preston and I was I was ten, I was just um, I was I was just very popular. So you know, I didn't see at the time I was the only black kid in the primary school. It seemed to be the only one. Me, actually, too. My friend Robert um, was there, and he was a dual heritage. I don't know if they call him mixed. I don't know what the right word, <laughs> right word to use. Let's say dual heritage, nonetheless. So I, it was very much. Um, everyone just loved us, you know, it just seemed as cool. And, and I think because of the culture at the time, everything was very much Americanized. We break dance and I could dance. I was the best dancer at school. So they were just loved. They were just seen as super cool, like a body pop, no body pop. Right? And I remember the headmaster in assembly asked me to come and do the moonwalk. So can you imagine? <laughs> I just did the moonwalk at the age of eight <laughs> across the hall and people were just mesmerized. So I was very much seen as very, I was just very popular, very cool. It was I didn't cool, get, um, yeah. yeah I was, didn't get that other half where it's like, oh, who were you, um, you know, get out of my country. Well, until I went to high school, then things started to change and I started to notice a def- definitely a different shift and when I went to high school, definitely, um, you know, I experienced racism there, um, in different forms, you know, people shouting at the N-word and so forth. But I, I was quite very, I was just got on with it, quite thick-skinned and, okay, I just, I just got on with it. And it's funny, I was walking with my friend Robert to school, and I remember um, there was a gentleman there with his son, um, and he was being, he said, oh, he, my friend's mixed race, so he's lighter-skinned. So he said to my friend, oh, you, you haven't been in the oven long, meaning our skin color. He goes, you haven't been in the oven long, have you? And he looks at me, he goes, but as for you, you've been in the oven a lot longer. So, and I just, and I just turned around, because I've been very witty, and I said, well, it's true, but I said, it looks like you two haven't been in the oven at all. So it looks Uh-oh. like we're all okay. And yeah. boy, did I go into trouble. <laughs> that, his son roughed me up at school, boy. He said, I'll tell you, talk to my dad and say we haven't been in the oven and blah, blah, blah. But it's all part of, you know, I was, I was just very um, quick-witted with my tongue. And, um, you know, I, just, I was able to stand up for myself. I was the older brother, so that's what I had to, isn't it? <laughs> There's no one else. I guess the vision that you had for yourself at 40 as a kid wasn't really affected by things like race. You felt quite free to have big ambitions, big ideas, even though you'd come from Ghana and as, as a young kid and, and come here in, in this strange country, you still didn't feel inhibited by what you could have achieved by 40. Would that be correct? Definitely. Did, did you feel like your dreams were attainable, like you could attain those things that you wanted? I definitely, as a kid, definitely. It just seemed um, the world was my oyster. I think living in the North, even though I faced some racism, it didn't stop me from thinking, you know, I can do well. And it was funny, um, those, those times for me, it was like what I saw on the TV then, I think I was very much into music and dancing and the fact that it was the breakdance era, Michael Jackson was there. I've seen people of my own color. Well, Michael Jackson was darker back then, so <laughs> I've seen people of my own color. So <laughs> I, could, I could, you know, I, I could look up to someone and when Shalimar came on top of the pops and Jeffrey Daniels did that moonwalk for the first time, it's like, wow, personal color, he's cool, he can dance. And because I could dance, they, people relate like, wow, this guy's cool, he can dance and do what they can do on the TV is when I was going through high school that I suffered, I, th- I suppose, more intense racism because you were then, as a first year, 
most of the other older kids that are white and, you know, they're a bit bullish. Nothing too severe, but definitely the N-word now and again, some slurs here and there, but I just kind of let it wash over my shoulder. So what I found when we moved down to London at the age of 13, so I left my high school halfway through the third year, I suffered more racism in London, in the, which was, I, that's where I was shell-shocked, like, wow, this is something different. And I, I actually um, um, suffered racism, actually, for my own people, which was weird. Absolutely. I, I would definitely say I've, I feel like I've experienced more discrimination and prejudices from my own circles than I have outside of it, which is very yeah. interesting. Really? But in what way, Shell? What, what kind of... I'd, I'd say definitely like maybe at work, you know, maybe, you know, people kind of being a little bit more having different expectations of me um, because we're the same colour and preventing me then from progressing in the way that I might want to. Um, right. Feeling like there isn't enough for us all to be progressive, that only one person can progress and look like them, you know, and I found that definitely more so from women than I have found from women from other um Races. Even though I have observed things from them too, it's been more shocking from my own because I don't expect it, I guess. You know, or even just colorism, you know, the way that people might impact you uh, in terms of, you know, whether you're darker or lighter, you know, whether your features are look like this and that. I found that more so from my own people who look like me, not mm. from people from a different race, which has always made me feel, wow, that's interesting. And we speak about racism a lot, but what about our own prejudices? Right. Sorry, Fitz. No, definitely. I, I just want to add, when I came to London, it was like, wow, I loved London. It was like bright lights, big city, and loads of black people, people of my own colour, community. And, you know, we've got, you know, people from, from Jamaica, from Barbados, we've got people from Africa, Nigeria. And that was the era where it just wasn't co- seemed to be cool to be African. I was like, this is, we're talking about the 80s now. And um, people, the, 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 no, I don't I have to say, but I mostly got it from the Jamaican people. They just weren't, it's not, as soon as they heard I was African, they didn't want to know me. <laughs> girls wouldn't go, you know, girls wouldn't want to go out with me. And the funny thing was, because it, culturally, we, it didn't seem that we had anything, um, you know, um, I'll say culturally repping for us at the time, because the visions of Africa was like, you know, Ethiopia, famine, war. We weren't, we weren't, um, seemed to be culturally cool with music. Um, um, sports we weren't on the main table like we are now with Afrobeats and we've got athletes and you know you've got Afrocello and you no know, Africa's just seen everybody wants to know about Africa but back then um, it seems the moment where are you from Africa uh, and I remember when I went to Ghana and I came back and I was sitting in a class and you know you know when parents are hard you, you just arrived from Ghana you're going to go to school the same day <laughs> yeah. you have the day off no you're going to study you're going to be a doctor <laughs> you're going to be a lawyer you can't, you can't take a day off so I was half asleep in the class and I, I can totally you know, relate I remember yeah. the British Caledonian <laughs> would land in the morning I'd have my school uniform on an hour after we landed and be in that classroom there you British go. Caledonian. I don't even have like the pins they gave me on the plane to take to the class. Wow, you still got, you still got a pen. <laughs> well, I did. <laughs> you know, so I, remember, so I remember sitting in the class and one of the, one of the um, guys shouted off, so Fitz, where'd you go? I, went, I said, I went to Africa. Well, you went to Africa and they just like burst out laughing. And I just find, I, I, honestly, I, that, that's, I was stunned because I wasn't, I was getting worse treatment and prejudice from my own people more than I was from the Caucasian people up north. 
And that's how I went to speak to my parents to say, look, I'm getting, is there something wrong? Is there, no, no, and they said not to worry. They said it's just ignorance, you know, just people's perceptions, ignorance, don't worry about it. You know, I started looking a bit more into my history and, and different things to get a kind of self-identity what this is all about. And it's funny, I used to think, because um, I used to see people wearing red, gold, and green. So I used to think that was the color of the Jamaican flag, not realizing the Jamaican flag is green, yellow, and black. So then when I realized you red, gold, and green is Ethiopian flag and Haile Selassie, I was like, yeah, but they don't seem like African, but they, they love Haile Selassie and what's going on. And things started to change when um, um, so Nelson Mandela was released and Soul to Soul came out. You know, you know, rocking the African medallion. Sounds of blackness. The, the sounds of blackness. And then slowly the tides just seemed to turn. And as people got older and they left school. And I remember um, I met a school friend who, who, you know, there was prejudice against me for being African. And he even came to apologize to me. I said, Fitz, I'm so, so sorry. And I mean, we didn't know, you know, it's ignorance. We didn't know what we was doing. And one time when I went to Ghana, much years later, the plane was just full of everyone from the Caribbean. <laughs> But this is what education, when people are uneducated yeah. about their history and they're not quite yeah. sure or they're pitched against each other or divided in ways, yeah. this is what happens, you know. The ignorance yeah. that mum and dad spoke of is exactly this. And until you yeah. educate and share the information. Yeah, and, and the thing is, I was speaking to them about it on the plane and it goes, no, we're so sorry. You know, a lot of us, we didn't know. Ignorance, you just mentioned Africa. It's like, no, I'm in Africa. I'm not going out. No, you know, you just seem to have a vision of like a man with a stick and, you know, half his clothes on, <laughs> rummaging for food. But, and it's funny, I'm just so glad, you know, um, times have changed. So that's the part I went through that I found very difficult. And in terms of my identity around um, 14, 15, 16, wasn't until about 17, 18, I started to find myself and feel proud, you know. And then, you know, so I'm so glad, you know, um, the younger generation today that everything Africa is just like the place in terms of culture, music, sports, you know, everything is just there. People want to change their names. They don't want to have that identity, you know, because here is not our home. UK is not our home. We're from, we're from a warmer climate. <laughs> and that's indeed. Yeah, so indeed. Go. And what were your friendship circles like as you got older in terms of kind of defining how you see yourself now? And how, how would you describe that? Oh, my friendship circle has changed. I certainly got, I know a lot of people, but I've got very few bona fide friends. I've actually only got two friends that I know from school. I've got one friend I've known from primary school, still good friends today, and one friend from high school. But I would say good bona fide friends, I probably just count them on one hand. But yes, I've got people I know, and you see now and again, you may go out, you go for a drink. But in terms of close, close, very, very few. And I suppose that group of people that I'm with, we all kind of kind of share that kind of drive and that vision of, you know what? We do the best. We work hard. Our parents worked hard. We're going to work hard. You know, we're going to encourage and support each other. And we're good enough as a clique to try and, you know, set a good example that actually this is a beautiful, it's a beautiful profession. And we've definitely got something to offer and to bring on the table. So that has shaped me a lot. I think my parents, really, the way they've worked hard and studied, you, 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 we, we, we could do nothing less than just do our best for them because they, they basically sacrifice so we can have a better life. And my life is better because of them. And my kids' life is awesome. They're, because because we've worked hard now, our kids, it seems like the struggle's getting a little bit less as the generations go along. And as you transitioned into your 20s, what were some of the significant factors there for you leading up to your 30th and 40th hour? Well, I had I came a five at 23. So, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> very um, young. But I was very mature. 
I was very mature, very mature in the house. I was a young dad. It did take me a little while to get settled into fatherhood, though. Um, I still wanted to go out with the guys and, you know, I had a baby and, yeah, I'm driving a, a, a four, four Nesco convertible. It's not ideally suitable <laughs> <laughs> to have a baby in the back. So it took me a while to kind of just mature into fatherhood um, as somehow. Was having a baby part of the plan? Yes and no. <laughs> yes, yes and no. Um, it, it just, I think at the time uh, when I was with my, my wife now, Mary, because I was with her at the time, that we felt that, you know, if we have our kids early, we can, you know, enjoy, you know, the later years together. And I think having them early, we just had loads of energy. So I was actually yeah. the youngest dad. My, my, when my son went to school, I was one of the youngest dads there. You know, so I just, you know, if you can do it for everyone, it doesn't suit their, suit their situation. So, um, yes, yes and no. When did you meet Mary? Because we kind of oh, just I'm skipped into Mary being a mum. Like, we yeah, didn't even Mary, hear her coming yes, into the picture. I, <laughs> yes, I met, I met Mary at uh, a wedding. And um, I was 19, she was 18. And I saw the wedding, I thought, my God, she's stunning. <laughs> and something just a spirit came inside of me. <laughs> so, this is the this one. This, this is, is the one. one. <laughs> and I, think I, I did my best dance combination. I bought, I bought dance moves out of the archives. <laughs> you know what I mean? And she still didn't know it's me too, tough. So I, I thought, oh, God, I'm going to have to work for this one. Mate. I'm going to have to work. But finally, when we met, you know, everything just um, connected well. And we got on really, really well. And yes, we're still married now. We're 19 years now. Wow. 19 years married and 28 years together. Amazing. And, and what has been some of the challenges in, in, that, in the union, in being a young dad? What were some of the things that you've had to navigate, I guess? Um, very um, difficult because when we, when we had Mark, we were both students. So when we started out, we were in a council place. You know, Mary was a student. No, we were on benefits for a little while. I was studying. I was in and out of jobs. Um, so we were just finding our feet, you know, and I was working. I know, and we were, I'm not work shy, so I was working any, anything. I was, I was a postman for a little while, <laughs> being chased by dogs. It's not, I'm saying, well, they, those dogs run fast, you know. Oh, my goodness. So I was a, a postman for a little while, and I worked at, a pap, you know, I was packing boxes. I was doing all sorts of old jobs just to bring something on the table. So we definitely wanted to make sure that the way our parents provided for us, we do the same for our kids. So it was a bit, it was a struggle. It's a struggle working opposite hours, not seeing each other, take the baby, you, you're so all the way through that. But as when we qualified and, you know, my, my wife's a biomedical scientist and I became a psychiatrist and things got better, you know, we were able to move to a bigger place and slowly, slowly the, the struggle became easier, but it was a struggle for many, many years. And I, I think this is, you know, definitely relevant to a lot of people and um, when you're starting out with kids and and what would you say because i mean there's you've got a second child as well isn't it yes um, yes how, how old my second child is 16 amy okay so i was just thinking when amy was born and when marcus yeah eight years gap People ask me about why is there eight year gap, and I say, well, I think I was working night shifts around then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, true. Nights are the only time you can make babies. So, what are you gonna do? <laughs> what are you gonna do? <laughs> Afternoons just for a quickie. Yeah. Anyway, we, we, we digress and move on. <laughs> 
Um, so I guess what I was try- was thinking about was more so some of the challenges that norm- families might find themselves in in terms of working, money, um, life, living hand to mouth. You know, what kind of lifestyle was that for you being a young young family raising children? Yeah, it was very difficult. I mean, we then moved, um, our first council place was in Winchmore Hill. Then we moved to, um, we were living in Tottenham, Northumberland Park, not far from the football ground. And boy, there's a whole load of things going on there that just wasn't suitable, um, you know, for raising the kids. You know, there's a crime and people hanging around. And, you know, we just, you know, my son's bike was stolen. It's just ongoing drama you know but we you know what we had probably the best years of our lives there because <laughs> we we got yeah we had our you know the kids got christened there we got married there you know and and we 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 settled in very nicely in Tottenham but it was a struggle I was either working nights and then and then I'll take Marcus to school in the day and Mary would be working in the day we always opposite and then it seemed like only Friday night and Saturday could catch up before you go to work and it was basically a six-day week most of the time you know, I'm either doing some overtime or Mary's doing because we wanted to move and get our first house and get a mortgage. So we're just doing double, double, double extra. And I remember I had a friend there that I befriended. You know, one day, you know, he's me, one of the woo boys around the way because I had a Audi coupe. Uh, I was lost, I lost sports cars. And that's, that's probably where I lost most of my money. And I had an Audi coupe <laughs> and he had an Audi coupe. So because we had the same car, we were chatting about cars. And I asked him, what do you do? And he's a big man, you know, like, um, and he goes, yeah, well, you know, I collect my benefits. I play my PlayStation. I got my car. You just see driving the car up and down the same place. No, no real ambition. And, <laughs> and, and I said to him, well, you know what? We, uh, we're going to move. And he goes, oh, once you're here, nobody moves. I goes, no, we are going to move. Trust me. And then nine years later, we left that council place and bought our first place because we are just working nonstop just had our heads down while we left everyone else to do the drama and whatever stuff they were doing. And when I saw him again, he goes, Fitch, you know what? I really respect you and your wife because even though you see us, because when we're driving in from like Tesco's, you see the same guys hanging around, you just nod or wave and then we park our car and go upstairs. And he goes, when you see us, you don't mind us. You do your thing. Your wife's very respectful. You're very calm, quiet family. And he goes, you just worked hard. So he really, he was just applauding us that we were able to move, even though he told us it probably wouldn't be possible. And you both, it sounds like you and your wife had a, a common goal, you know, that work ethic together. You knew what you wanted and you were focused um, and, and not distracted by some of the, the things that people can get distracted easily by, I guess. Yeah, definitely. And I wouldn't say, look, sometimes distractions come up, but even if we're distracted or something happens, we try and get ourselves back on track and stay the course, you know, in, in the long term. Failure forty. Failure at 40. Yes, yeah, so I've worked for around 27 years before I became an entrepreneur and, you know, took on semi-retirement in my mid-40s. I've worked for a long, long time. From the age of 18, I've always worked full-time. Um, I've always seen the value in work and that if you want, I like nice things. And nice things are not free. You need to work. And plus, I was a young dad from 23. So I've worked all the way um, for 27 years until I felt that, you know, I was looking for something else, something more. What job were you doing before you became an entrepreneur? I was a psychiatric nurse. And before I was a psychiatric nurse, I've been a, I was in NHS for about 16 years. Before then, I was doing a lot of odd jobs. So I've done loads of jobs. I've done McDonald's. I've been a dustbin man. I've been a postman. I've worked in a warehouse. I've done picking and packing. And, um, I, <laughs> I've, and um, my, I've done an apprenticeship. I was actually an orthotic technician. Um, from the age of 18 to about 24. And I used to... What's one of those? um, Basically, an orthotic technician is a person that makes 
the calipers and the if somebody's got if you look at athletes who maybe if you've got a leg support brace that's called an orthotic piece if someone's wearing a brace if in case they've had right. an injury or maybe they're running and they need support with their leg they're wearing a knee brace yeah and sometimes you see them fixed into shoes so we call them calipers right. and we attach them sometimes to false legs as well so that's an, an, wow. an orthotic appliance. So that's what I was that's what I was taught, and I did that for about six years. It was a very interesting job, actually. And what made you decide you to really change? You very jobs. Yes, he does. I think that's the makeup of why you're so, <laughs> you know, the makeup that makes you what you are. I guess. Yes, and plus the paper round. I think no, I don't know if most kids are that I did a paper round. Well, I did a paper round. Three paper rounds. <laughs> we had no. Me and Winnie did a paper round together. But we was doing a paper round. <laughs> yeah, first. we did. Me, Winnie, yeah. and another one. Yeah, we did. Yeah, I did the morning one with the bike, and I did the afternoon. The afternoon one was hard. We were about five hundred papers, and you come out, and then your trolley's missing with all the papers gone. (laughs) (laughs) You know, so I remember the I remember those days. Yeah, so I've done quite a lot of varied jobs, but it's what shaped me um, to who I was. And why did I leave the technician? Because there was no growth. They, I'd got to where I could and there wasn't any high positions. There wasn't a bigger income. There's no way I was going to grow there. I was older now. Um, so I was there from 18 to 24. By 24, I felt a bit disillusioned that there was more that I wanted and it wasn't going to happen here. I'd kind of come to the end of the road. So I left actually without no other job, knowing that I would get another job. And I did get another job eventually, but it was a period where I had no job, but I just knew I'd, I'd get a job at some point. And, and then Marcus was born. So that hence, well, I was doing the odd jobs while he was born just to provide. And then I, I it was then later on that I went into care work and then became a nurse. So I went to uni late, actually. I was a mature student. I went to uni at 28 because um, I, I, me- I messed about at school, unfortunately, most of the part. And was that to become a psychiatric nurse or was that to, because you said you worked in the NHS for like about 16 years. So was that about that time? Yes, psychiatric nurse. No, um, so basically um, when I went into uni at 28 and I qualified at 31, I'd worked for about 15, 15 16 years afterwards. Higher. Oh, yeah, after, yeah. okay. No, right. no, afterwards. So from, from 31 up until about 45, you know. I'm still, I'm still a qualified nurse now, just that I haven't, um, I've not been working um, as one, but I still have my pin. Um. And, and what was your experience, I guess, of the working world, being able to develop enough money to provide for your family? What, what was your journey? It, well, the journey? The journey is hard. I think for anyone, um, you know, getting up at 5 a.m. to start a shift at 7 you're doing, um, the money's never enough. You're always doing overtime. So it just seems like it's just never enough. You, they pay you enough, but uh, not too much. So you can come back. <laughs> yeah. And you forever. Yeah. You know, we'll and I came, I came to, um, I, when I got to about 37, I was thinking, hang on. I looked at my salary as a qualified nurse and I realized in 10 years, my salary had only gone up by 700 pounds. And I was thinking, my goodness, I'm not, I'm not, is it, how, I think I kind of reached the level where I was and I thought, if I want to earn any more money, I'm going to have to go and do more studies and take on a job that's got more responsibilities and more stress. And I didn't want that. And I was desperate to have more money and more time. But when you're working, you have maybe money and you lose the time. You can never seem to have yeah, both. The same, and I was same desperate time. for that because I stopped doing them um, like overtime by mid thirties. I stopped doing weekends. I stopped doing nights. I just did Monday to Friday, nine to five. because I wanted more time with the family. The values have changed. Absolutely. You know, the, you know, I want, I valued more time with the family rather than just keep working. Cause at the end of the day, what you're working to, you're working towards something, but there has to be 
an end goal so you can actually enjoy the money you're working for or what value does the money have? Because I know people keep working all the time and they're still working now until they drop. <laughs> but they're not, there's no end goal. Like they don't seem to enjoy the money because they're always working. Did you not feel like you was missing out on anything working from such a young age when all your boys might have been out partying and stuff and you was out there hustling on, on all your different jobs? Did, did you not feel a sense of FOMO? Um, you know what? I still enjoy myself because <laughs> if yeah. I knew there's a party or something going, I'd move my shift. <laughs> so I've gone, I've gone to parties. Um, right. I'll do an early shift on Saturday, so I can go to the party on Saturday night and do a late shift on Sunday, right. so wow. I can do a later shift. So I'd find a way to get to that party. I'm not gonna. Miss so you're still living. Still, still living. living. You have still balance. finding a way. Yeah, fine. Trying to find a way. Have that. But then you know, but not all the time. As you got older, you couldn't attend everything. And sometimes, you know, work and, and responsibility just get in the way of having fun. But we did find a way to have fun. And even as a family, you, you know, we have, we have our own parties and have our own fun within the family, right. which is good. So what does life look like to you now? What, what's different now from, from those days? What's changed for Fitzgerald Mensah? Oh, well, there's a lot of change. I think from the age of 37, when I, I was looking for something and I stumbled across an opportunity where I could earn extra money, and build a passive income. And I think when I started this opportunity, my mindset just changed. And, you know, I got into networking. I started creating an income alongside my nursing. And I just grew it from there. Well, within that, I had a lot of personal growth because I go to a lot of trainings. I started reading books about other people that were successful that I wanted to attain to. So I just grew in terms of my personal growth. And financially, I was growing as well. So by the time I came to um, like 40, 45, I had already left, I left uh, my permanent job in 2011. And how old have you been then? I would have been um, blah, 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 2011. I'm probably on the spot with So we're talking about 30, 30, 34. So if I, if I could clap that right, I'm going seven. Yeah, no, no, sorry, about 36, 36. And I, from then on, I, I left my job and went to work as a locum, as an agency nurse, so I could have more freedom because I knew as a locum nurse I could be paid more but work not as many hours. So that was the start of me now searching for that type of freedom and getting the income. And it was great working as a locum because I could work the t- hours I wanted, earn the money and still build a business alongside. And life for me now is great because being much more open-minded, um, I found that at this age, I'm actually in my prime. I'm actually Absolutely. in my prime um, where I feel um, pretty much fulfilled. And it's not, and it's funny, I'm not in my, it's, and it's not so much wealth orientated. It's the feeling that, you know what? I know who I am. <laughs> yeah. I know well, it's priceless, I, I isn't it? Yeah. I know what my gift is. And my gift is to talk and inspire people so they can reach their full potential. And not everybody may know what their gift is. And I'm just fortunate to have that gift. And because of that gift and being able to help other people find their voice and find themselves, it, gives, it brings me great joy. Plus as well, we live abroad. <laughs> we live, you know, we took an opportunity. Um, my, my wife was um, online and she was approached by an agency on LinkedIn you say, would you like to come to Qatar to work for a client that's been in a new hospital? And we, we, you know, initially we thought, you know, do you really want to leave the UK? But we thought, hey, we, we've been working here for over 20 years. We're not going that far. This looks like a really good opportunity. And the benefits were so good. We would have, we would have been stupid to have not have gone. So that really helped as well. How long have you been there for? I've been there for six years now. My wife's been there for seven years and I've been there for six years. 
So you would have just turned 40, maybe 40, 41. Yeah. Yeah, and then said, right. I want a drastic change. And maybe you'd been local yeah. working about five years, five or six yes. years, four years, four, five years. Yeah, that's right. And then this opportunity came. So I guess your mindset was already changing, shifting, you know, and then you probably just manifested this all into in the place, you know, and then you, you've moved to Qatar. So what, yes. what has it been like living in Qatar for you, Mary? Um, I'll tell you what, if, if you have a profession um, that the Middle East wants, I'm talking particularly about Qatar, Bahrain, Oman, Abu Dhabi, Dubai, Kuwait. I mean, if you've got a profession that these countries want because they, they're building up their countries, then they'll pay you handsomely for it. I mean, um, Qatar is warm, there's hardly any crime, and we have, you know, a better lifestyle, we have more, more, more financial freedom. Um, so it's, almost, it's, it's a blissful lifestyle, it's like Disneyland there. <laughs> it's, just, it's just so calm, I don't have to think and worry about anything when I'm there. Um, so he just showed me, because I used to think England was the best place to be. <laughs> You're in England, <laughs> you got a red passport. Nothing can be better than this. Got a passport, I got the passport. I've got a passport. I got the passport. I can go anywhere I like, I can skip the queue. But when you go somewhere else, you're thinking, hang on, England's as good as I thought. It's not as good as I thought, and it just opened up our eyes. So actually, when we come back in a couple of years, because our daughter will turn 18, we'll leave Qatar, and she'll come to uni. Once she settles down, we'll look to go to another warm climate. So we'll probably head back to Ghana and, you know, and build, because Ghana's ripe for business, and I love Ghana. Just the, the welcome, and it's just a, it's, I've been repping Ghana for years, when nobody wants to know about Ghana. So it's not to take, take American celebrities and <laughs> to come there to rep it up. But we've been trying to tell people about Ghana for years. So uh, even people not from Ghana said they've traveled a lot, but they've never known a welcome. There's something about Ghana when you land, it just hits you and you just feel like, wow, this place is awesome. So we're probably going to settle out there and, you know, um, create and start some new ideas we want to develop. If you imagined, because we're looking at 40, I bet you didn't imagine you'd be living abroad, be living in Qatar, um, thinking about moving back to Ghana even. that I imagine that wasn't part of your, your 40 picture of what 40 would look like right no definitely not definitely not i i think when i started um you know when much if we go back i would have probably thought you know we're working all the way to 65 you know we'll follow what our parents done and you know work until we were retirement age and then when you you retirement age then you think about going back but we've actually been able to do things a lot earlier because we've taken advantage of opportunities if i hadn't taken advantage of that opportunity to create an extra income and network, I wouldn't have had the mindset or the income to do what I had to do. If myself and my wife didn't take the opportunity to go to Qatar, we wouldn't be living that lifestyle. And when I ask a lot of people now, they're like, move? No, no. <laughs> I say, if you try for a year, but they just don't want to know. They don't, they don't want to change the position they're in. Then People find it hard to change, I've noticed. So you've actually exceeded what you expected for yourself, right? So what 40 actually looks like, is far better than what you could have imagined for yourself back then. Yeah, definitely far better. I wouldn't imagine myself coming to UK for holiday. I mean, so, right. so, you know, I'm, I'm, sometimes I'm lost. I'm not asking for directions. Where's the circus thing? No, it feels quite funny when I arrive. I feel, wow, I'm actually a tourist, you know. It's, it's a very good feeling. And do you think it is a, a, a mindset issue? This is about shifting how we look at things, understanding there's life outside of the UK. So I guess for some people, they go away for two weeks and think this is really nice. And they come back and they haven't really had enough time to really get to understand 
another place, how it runs, you know, what it's like when you're not a tourist there and you're actually living there, then you can really make informed decisions about, okay, I like this place. I could maybe consider living here, you know? And I don't think we're given much about outside of the UK, about how the rest of the world other than America might be. And I guess some people aren't exposed enough uh, to understand and consider something else. Um, so it's great to hear from someone like you. Yeah, I think you're definitely right. It is, um, it is about mindset. And what is the great thing because of technology and people are traveling more, it's just cheaper to easier to travel than what it was when I remember in my parents' time, you know, where, you know, you go up the high street or, you know, they go to book holiday, you know, on high street or on the phone and it just seemed a whole ordeal to travel. But now it's just easy. People can just literally get up and go the next day and so many wonderful deals because of technology. And you get to see places online and people post videos on Instagram, like I'm here and there. So people, I think, are much more adventurous now than I think than what they were. And now they are taking more, you know, opportunities, even if it's a gap year, people are trying different experiences because I think life is for the living and people realize that, you know what, I don't have to just settle for where I am. I can have something different. Let me try it. So I'm just asking people to try it. I'm not saying, look, go somewhere and then that's the rock and key. You can't come back. You still got your red passport. Go out there for six months and try it. See how you feel. And if you don't like it, come back. We'll let you back in. It's all good. (laughs) Well, (laughs) we hope so. I imagine people look at you now, Fitz, and think that you and your family are living, like, your best life. You, you live in this beautiful location where it's always sunny, got these two great kids, you're doing well, a lovely wife. So I'm wondering if that puts pressure on you. Is that why you're constantly trying to find new locations to move into and, and thrive? Uh, is there a pressure behind all of the moves that you make to keep up this image of you and your family and, and how successful you've all been? No, I, there's no pressure at all because it's not an image that we said, right, we've got to have this image and we've got to look like this. It's just everything, the opportunities have evolved. Unfortunately, it's given us the life that we have. So we're like, hey, we've got this life. We, we, we're just living normally. So it's not like we're trying hard or, you know, this is just a normal, for us, we're, we've taken an opportunity and we're living a normal life. So now we've had a taste of it. We're like, okay, where, where can we go to next? And now we've had a little, we've got more sort of time freedoms. Um, we are now thinking, okay, what other things can we do? We're now thinking of, you know, what other um, things do we enjoy that we'd like to do? So it's definitely opened up that for us there. And I guess it's how, you know, looking at how, others can live there's other ways to live life as it were life doesn't have to just be about nine to fives um or you know just with the kids just with the wife there are so much other facets to to life other than that and and i guess if you're not um open to looking at things differently you're always in a particular mindset but if you can shift that then actually you can consider something different and and i think as i said before it it is it is mindset some people i think exactly like what winnie's saying could feel like they must have a life that looks like this and if they don't they're somehow not meeting a a duty a responsibility this should be where they're thriving to if they want to be deemed as successful yeah And, and i think that could be easily become an issue for people who think they're aspiring to what they should be rather than this is what i've organized for myself and we've just been lucky that it's transpired this way or we've tried to create it so that it happens this way. I think you're definitely right. Um, there's, I think a lot of the time we put a lot of pressure on ourselves 
because we want to conform maybe to society, maybe the way we were brought up. When you reach 40, you should be looking this way. You should have this house. You should have this car. But at the end of the day, I think also what in some ways the, you know, the pandemic also has made people realize that, hey, you know, you start to value the, the simple things in life. You start to value, you know, we've had, we've had um, things that we take for granted taken away from us for some time. So it's like people are now thinking, you know what, I'm really going to really value my life. I need to look after my health a bit better. I want to, you know, visit friends. I want to take up a hobby. And I think fulfillment in life is not, one feels fulfilled, I believe, not necessarily when he feels, okay, I've got this. And we tend to stay towards material. So sometimes I feel feeling of fulfillment that you feel that, hey, I've really got, you know, things are pretty much in balance. You know, the kids are okay. My health is okay. And hey, if, you, if it's fishing that you love and you're able to go and fish every weekend, then some people say, look, I, I'm able to fish every weekend. I feel fulfilled. So, you know, whatever it is that you feel rocks your boat, you can, unless, unless you do you. Mm. it's relative yourself, I guess you, it's relative for you and that's good enough we, we don't have to um, set markers because once we start comparing you know they say you know you're comparing comparing is going to be a thief of your joy because you're always trying to be like someone stay in your own lane look at where you was 10-20 years ago and look at where you are now there's been a change there's been some improvements you know um, it's not always about you know I've got to get this I've got to get that but look at what you've been able to you may even had an impact on people through your years that you've not realised you know you've been giving good value to people it may not have transpired and that it's helped you to get to where you want but you've been giving it in other ways so you know you have to really look at in your own lane and be be happy as long as you're trying I think that's the key as long as you're trying if you've set some things out for yourself as long as you're trying then and that is all that matters. It's when you stop trying and say, then, you know, we might as well be dead then, isn't it? If we stop trying, we're not here. So as long as you're trying and you're taking those small steps, then yes, I think you're on the right track. So I think you give too much credit to luck. You mentioned that you were lucky. I don't actually think it's luck. I think you just have a very optimistic outlook on, on your life because you guys did struggle to have the life that you have now. You, you talked about having a child young when all your kids were probably, all your friends were probably out having a really good time. You talked about the night shifts that you did for eight years and you're missing your wife and you're not seeing each other. All of that stuff is sacrifice, but I think that you just have a particular positive outlook on things and you under, or appreciate why you're doing it and you're focusing on the end goal, which lucky for you has, has worked out. Um, but not everybody, I think, has the ability to have that staying power in a marriage to keep grinding, keep finding new jobs, and then maintaining a relationship with their partner under all the pressure of, of having kids and trying to move home and move out, move out the hood to buy your own home. Because you could have quite, you could have quite easily said to your wife, "No, I don't want to go to Qatar. Thanks very much. I'm quite happy here, driving up and down like that man over there. He's cool. He's happy." I want some of that, you know, but no, you didn't, you, you know, uh, you, you, you decide actually it's an opportunity for our whole family, not just for my wife. And, and I'm going to go. I think Winnie's really hit the nail on the head. You are optimistic. And I think a lot of that grounding and that happy go lucky energy you've had throughout your life, you know, has really helped you to arrive where you are today. That's just from my, how I'm viewing what you've, the story you've told us, you know, and that's a real blessing, Fitz. Absolutely. No, thank you so much. I think, as you said, Winnie, you definitely hit the nail on the head. And when I say lucky, <laughs> we're not lucky. We've, we've worked hard, we've taken opportunities, but 
through the opportunities we've created our own luck. Our eyes are open. And I've, I've always been of the saying that if you want something, you've got to work for it. The world doesn't owe you anything. <laughs> Some people go say, oh, well, the world owes me a five-bedroom house or the world owes me this. It doesn't owe you anything. You have to go. No one's going to give it to you. So you have to fight and work hard for the things that you want. And I've always had that kind of mindset that, you know, I can't actually be stopped from doing anything I want to do. As long as I've got the passion and the love for it, I'm going to work and find a way to get it, even if it takes me a long time. Because most of the time you're kind of written off. People um, have ideas and things they want to do, and someone says, oh, it's going to be hard, isn't it? I don't think it's possible. And you already put it into your head. And you're like, oh, maybe they're right. Oh, you don't want to go to Qatar. Isn't it dangerous? Like, you know, people say, think, oh, maybe they're right. Maybe I shouldn't go. But we've also think, you know what? Let's go. Let's see what happens. The worst thing happens, we can come back. And, you know, so I'm always about how can we grow? How can we learn? And how can we help others along the way? And maybe inspire a few people as well. Would you have advice for your younger self if you look back on, on anything that you think maybe could have improved where you are now? Anything you would have changed? What, what would you tell your younger self? Um, the, the, don't buy a sports car when you shouldn't really be driving a sports car. <laughs> <laughs> if you got a sports car in your early 20s, then you can only put five pounds petrol and you shouldn't be driving a sports car. I think it was the days of Golf, Golf GTIs and BMWs and just, you know, taking out, taking out loans to buy alloy wheels and oh, big speakers and you're in debt and you just want to, it's more about, uh, look at me, I'm shining, I look good and you're, you're, going, you're going to debt for it. I'm shining. I definitely avoid all the liabilities that I spend most of my money on in the early days. I didn't know how to, I didn't understand money back then. It's all about spend, 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 and borrow, borrow, borrow. So I definitely, Mm. I think I would have been not be spending the liabilities. I would have invested in property in my 20s and not later on in my 30s. Yeah, right. Yeah, so if I'd done them, I'd have been 10 years out. But if I'd known the property game, if I'd been shown and taught how to um, use and manage money and how to grow money from school, mm-hmm. and maybe, you know, my, my parents as well, um, I would have built a portfolio from the first onset of 20, but I didn't have that um, understanding at the time. It was more about, you know, what, what material things can we get to look at? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so there you have it. I'll tell my younger self to, you know, um, use money and make money wisely and not be spending. Spend wisely, yes. Yeah, and, build assets. And, and what does the future look like for you, for Mr. Mensa? What does the future look like? The future looks bright. I'm happy every day. I'm just happy to be alive, to tell the truth. I'm just happy. If I, get, if I wake up tomorrow, God willing, I will. I'm going to give thanks. I'm going to be happy. I'm going to max out that 24 hours and do as much as I can um, to, to progress and I'll try and affect as many people as I can with positivity and, and love as we go along and I think you know you've got one life one shot so make the most of it and I don't want to leave this off with any regret. I want to know that I tried everything that I've set out to do and that's what I'm going to do and um, there's only two things that can stop me that's God and I think God's given me the green light and myself and when I look in the mirror I just tell myself you're good enough go and get it and I do so I, that's my advice to everyone. Would you have any tips for people who are turning 40, um, just turned 40 and are feeling a little bit apprehensive um, about that? Is there any wisdom you could share for them? You know what? When I was younger, I thought 40 was old. <laughs> when I was younger, I thought, oh my gosh, it's 40, he's old, man. And now, it's funny, I'm, I'm, at the, I'm at the age where I used to look at my uncle and aunties when I was younger as a kid. Your uncle and, uncle and aunties must have been in their 40s going to the pies. And now I'm at that age, I'm thinking, and you know, now I'm at the age, 
it's, it's not the for you. I feel like I'm still in my 20s. I'm actually having, I'm, in, I'm enjoying my 40s more than I've enjoyed my 30s and my 20s. Because in my 40s, I've actually, you know, and I can now say solid, <laughs> you know, fin- you know um, financially, you know, where I want to be, you know, I'm confident, I know who I am. Um, I, I, I've learned from the life experiences. So I'm actually enjoying this time more than I have any other time. And also my kids are older as well. So have much more freedom. So I think life definitely begins at 40. And I think you should not think and have, okay, I'm at this age, so that's it. You know, it's game over. No, it's, the game is just starting. It's what you make it. So even when I'm in my 50s, 60s, 70s, I'm just going to be, you know what? The game is just started. There's another day. What, what, what else can I conquer? <laughs> that's how my mind is. What else can, how can I grow more? What else is it that I need to do? Let's make the most of it. So I said to anybody out there, if there's anything you want to do, if there's a passion, if there's an interest, anything you want to do, go out and do it. If you got to, you know, if you're working Monday to Friday, what's, what can you do on the weekend? Follow that passion, that dream. Go for it. What's the worst that could happen? It doesn't materialize. At least you're giving it a try. So don't, let's not leave, let's not leave a life wasted because it's very precious and do the things that we're meant to do. Hey. Is that what semi-retirement looks like, doing the things that you're meant to do? What, what is that in your 40s, semi-retirement? Oh, you know what? I probably, when I say semi-retirement, <laughs> it means I don't, I've got no formal job. I work for myself. Um, you know, I, I've, I've got other, other streams of income. So I, I, when I say so many times, because I still am very, very busy, but for myself, I'm, I'm busy working on my own goals and other projects that I have. Um, so it, feel, it feels wonderful because I've, 27 years working is a long time. Um, and I remember, you know, every time I walk past a bus stop, or I uh, look at the bus and think, wow, I remember standing here at 5 a.m. <laughs> in the snow, wow. <laughs> cold, shivering, thinking, Damn you, looking up to the sky, cursing somebody. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I guess no, something so. that you said, Fitz, that I just wanted to touch back on was this the fact that life begins at 40 and people often think that actually they're on a slippery slope downwards when actually no you now you're probably more likely to be solid like you said have your identity a little bit more together know what you want be more purposeful i guess um and it's time for people to actually start going for the things that they want you know rather than thinking actually it's too late and i think a lot of people might get to that stage thinking i haven't arrived and actually you're ready you're ready for the game now you're on the court yeah, I, I think you're definitely right. I think your 20s and your 30s are just kind of leading you up. You know, these are the times where you're getting your, you're learning and making the mistakes and your experiences. And that's leading you up to this beautiful decade of the 40s where, you know, you've got a sense of purpose. I think it's that sense of purpose. And, you know, you know who your real friends are by then. Because <laughs> all the hangers on would have dropped off by then. They ain't going to be hanging on that long. So you really know where you are and what you're doing. And it's like, wow, Okay. And, you know, and you're maybe in a better position to actually have the time to, to focus on those other things. I mean, I've got people, you know, in their 40s who are studying now, you know, they're taking on degrees. Uh, you know, I've got people taking on things which they couldn't do in their 20s and 30s. So it's definitely funny. If you have that thought that life is for the living and regardless of which decade you're in and you go for it, it's as good. Age is just a number. It doesn't matter about the age. It's about how you feel. I feel great. I feel like I'm literally in my 20s. I got I got more energy than most twenty year olds easily. So true. So true. So That's true. because I I I I think it and feel that way. Because if I if I if I woke up and said, oh, 
I'm 40, oh God, getting on, I'm getting on. I start saying I'm getting on. You know, you start walking with your, your back starts hunching over, isn't it? But I, I wake up, I wake up for a while, I feel 40, I'm in my mid 40s, I'm going on to 50, I feel great. I feel like a young man and I act and move like a young man. He's got a bit of a spring in his step. Plus a few, a few vitamins along the way don't help, you know. So a few, a bit, a few food supplements help as well. That is a beautiful note to end on, Bits. Thank you. Is there is there um a social media account that people can follow you on to get more of this beautiful energy and, and high vibrations that you're you're admitting emitting right now? Oh. Where can people follow you? Oh well I'm on Instagram, just Fitzgerald Mensah. You'll see me there. I'm also on Facebook, Fitzgerald Mensa. I'm easy to find because there's not many Fitzgerald Mensas, so they can see me there. And it'd be great to connect with the wider audience out there. And, um, you know, let's get the show on the road. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you, Fitzgerald. Thank you so much, Shelley, Winnie and Stephen. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. And you know what? I hope um, even if we can impact and make one person out there feel that they're not fading at 40, then I think it's a podcast well done. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Agreed. Thank you you very much. (laughs) Failure at 40. 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 Failure at 40.